So we have to take advantage of the technology that we have, but not forget the benefits of bringing them to our classrooms as, as much as we can, because that really is the whole child to understand their family dynamics and to see their bedrooms and bring their pets and their relatives and, and everything else that they could just, it, it takes time. But I think with technology, we could definitely do that. Welcome to another podcast of Prisma Center for Jewish Day Schools. My name is Elliot Rabin, and I am Prisma's Director of Thought Leadership. This podcast is part of a series called Research Encounter, featuring a conversation between a researcher and day school leaders about a recent work of scholarship. Today's conversation features an article by Dr. Ziva Hassenfeld entitled Text Discussion in a Pre-K to First Grade Virtual Bible Classroom that was published recently in the Journal of Jewish Education. Um, Ziva is the uh, Jack Joseph and Morton Mandel Assistant Professor of Jewish Education at Brandeis University. And joining her are two uh, remarkable educators from uh, the two coasts. Uh, Michal Bessler is the elementary school principal at the Maimonides School in Brookline, Massachusetts. And Aviv Matskin teaches Jewish studies at Gideon Hausner Jewish Day School in Palo Alto, California. Welcome everybody. I'm going to start with a quote from the article and that will feed in to uh, Ziva talking a little bit about the paper itself. The quote is, in our study, we looked at when and how the students engaged one another in hopes of better understanding the possibilities and limits of building relationships in remote classrooms with young learners. The article really tries to get at the potential of online learning for student engagement, potential and limits, student engagement with the material and each other. So Ziva, could you tell us something about the paper, how it, how it came about that you wrote it, that you did this work and some of your findings? Absolutely. Um, so I don't do much in research without talking to Michal and Aviv, um, two of the greatest Jewish educators uh, out there right now, really, um, who have a level of expertise that I only aspire to. And so when the schools closed um, and went virtual, I reached out to first Aviv just to say, what's going on? Um, you know, my kids were not yet in day school and I was drowning and I was wondering what he was up to. And he sent me um, these incredible videos of him teaching and his second grade students, his fourth grade students sitting with their parents, sitting on their parents' lap, sitting at a table with their younger siblings. And I had observed Aviv teaching for years in my doctoral research. And there he is on Zoom doing his teaching. And now the entire family is in the room or on the screen. And I was just fascinated to see that transition. And I realized um, just watching a few of those videos that this was something that needed to be studied. And so that's sort of how this research came to be. And I'll say one more thing before I open it up, which is that I also knew 
that I couldn't just be an observer. I don't believe in doing research on any topic that you have not lived yourself. And so I myself was a Tanakh teacher for years before I became a researcher, but I had never taught on Zoom. I never taught children on Zoom. So I realized that this research was going to have to be teacher research because I couldn't just watch Michal teach on Zoom. I couldn't just watch Aviv teach on Zoom. I had to try it. That's the way that I do my research. And so this turned into a teacher research project where I um, did a collaboration with a local Boston school and I taught their full-time online track. And it became a combined track of pre-K through first grade because they also offered like all the day schools in Boston, a live um, in-person option all of last year. Before we jump into the, the findings, what initial impressions of Eva and Michal did you have to her chapter? Well, Ziva, can you tell us about the number of students that you had on, uh, online at any one time? I mean, this is my concern as I was teaching with Zoom, how to transform this in-class experience, which might have 20 to 25 students, to an online format where you are trying to recreate this rich form of conversation and dialogue and the um, Zoom experience, which was slowing down that back and forth. Yeah. So because the Boston Day Schools were open last year, um, and this was a track for students whose families, for whatever reasons, couldn't have their students in person, there were actually only eight kids in the class. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm going to follow that up, Ziva. Um, having experienced it, what do you think the optimal number is? So I've been thinking a lot about this. Um, you know, I, I think a lot about it in terms of a live classroom, and I've had the chance to teach 10 kids and the t- chance to teach 30 kids in a room. Uh, and Ziva, you know, I want it to be rich and I want it to be fast and I want it to be text focused and I want to hear the maximal number of students participating. Um, but I found it very difficult during online Zoom to include as many people, you know, kids have to unmute yourself. You have to say, we don't hear you. It just slows the pace. And then, you know, kids are raising their hand in the little windows and trying to do it digitally and you're trying to get to everybody. So what would you say is the optimal number of participants? Um, that's a great question. And I would, I mean, I want to say from the, I'm, I'm going to answer your question, but I want to say that we did this. It was very much the um, Dievid. Like I am not a proponent of children learning on or behind screens that I want children to be in the class. I want them to be with each other. But what this research was about was, is there something that we can learn by changing, right? Isn't it a phenomenal experiment that the entire world has to change its modality of teaching? And what can we learn about the art of teaching from this forced experiment? And so that's not an answer to your question, but I just want to say my answer is zero. I want children in the classroom. I want children together. But something that I learned and this might be jumping to the findings, is that it was an incredible experience and humbling experience not to have physical authority, not to be able to tap the desk, not to be able to see if their book was open. Mm -hmm. And I have written a lot about teacher authority in my research, and I was absolutely amazed at the challenge of taking away physical authority, that I am just a box, and yeah. so that's a question that I actually want to pose to you two. What did um, what did you learn in your time? 
So I, I loved your focus, Ziva, because I think that building relationships in any situation is key, especially during a pandemic where our students were isolated by their peers, friends, grandparents, family members, and, and school friends and their teachers. And it was not only a place to learn, it was also a place to connect and socialize. And I think that's the, the gift that we had on Zoom um, during remote learning. And I think that building relationships in person, of course, is fundamental, and we all prefer in-person interactions. Um, and the relationships happen, just like you mentioned in your, in your article, through discourse, by sharing opinions, ideas, perspectives, and all of that um, was amazing to be able to have that during the pandemic. I, I felt like we were in our Zoom bubbles, you know, everything else stopped, but learning continued. And not only did it continue, we brought our schools into our students' homes with their siblings, with their pets, with their parents. And that was priceless. That was amazing. Um, I do agree with Aviv. I think the number of students in a Zoom screen really makes it, you know, a, a challenge to have 20 kids versus to have eight kids. You know, you can't give them the, the, the same airtime and the same attention and checking in for understanding and having students engage with each other is, is much more challenging. But we found creative ways to do that, you know, putting kids in breakout rooms with another adult, with an assistant, or separate Zoom rooms, it was possible. But just through trial and error and, and creativity, um, but I do agree that the smaller the groups, the more successful we found our students learning. So Michal, I want to go on that possible there because Elliot, I think, brought us together here to talk about what would this look like for the future? God willing, we will not have this situation again where we're forced to do it. So Michal, can you imagine a situation in which you would say, yes, we're in school or in person, but you know what? For this week, we're going to do some offline things. And you know what? Zoom or whatever use you have is perfect for this. I mean, I am having a hard time imagining it, not only because it was very difficult to do it at the time. Um, and you, Michal, have brought out the enriching aspects of it. But can you imagine a time where you'd say, actually, online would be more useful. It would be more enriching for our students. No, I, I, I think there's nothing... It in-person experience cannot be replaced in any capacity. Um, no matter how advanced the technology was in our classrooms, um, it cannot be replaced because the in-person engagement that you have, the relationship, the, the immediate feedback that you can give a, a student, a tap on the shoulder, and uh, just walking over to a student and smiling towards them and critical social cues that our students learn by making eye contact with the teacher and, and each other, that's, that's irreplaceable. This was the best that we possibly could during a very challenging time. So Ziva, I'm wondering, Ziva, if you, if you agree, because uh, it sounds like, Ziva, what you were able to do is bring in students who were not part of that 
one school, but you could bring like three schools together. So Michal, let's say you have an amazing teacher and what your teacher is doing is with 25 students, but it's possible your teacher could do it with 60 students if we opened it up to the world and they were able to come and learn with that teacher. Ziva? I'm with Michal 100%. And I think that what's interesting about having this conversation in the context of Jewish education is that we've actually been interested in a while for using Zoom, for using technology to replace resources that we might not have. So for example, with virtual uh, Jewish high school, that if you are in a day school, a high school in Kansas, and you can't take high-level Gemara, you could um, Zoom into a class at Maimonides and get that. And I think there are reasons to do that. But what Michal said is so beautiful because teaching is about relationships. Teaching is about um, community. And in that way, there is no, we, I I both acknowledge the role of technology, but I don't want to lose what Michal said, which is that, of course, the relationship is not the same in boxes as it is, um, as it is in person. And I want to say one more thing, though because this is a finding that we haven't yet discussed, which is that when you walk into someone's home, when someone invites you over for a Shabbat meal, or you have some board meeting in a person's home, all of a sudden that person becomes dynamic and uh, multifaceted. And you see parts of them that you simply could not see in the board room, in the classroom. And that was something that was very special to me, teaching on Zoom. Oh my gosh, you have a dog. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, that is your little brother. That is your grandmother. And so though I always want to be in the classroom, I am thinking about how do we, how do we bring the whole home in? How do we bring that? It was such, it was such a blessing and it was such a resource for teaching and for learning to see who they had in their, in their world. And so that's something I am interested in. Me too, Ziva. I, I love that. I love to see them in their natural, comfortable spaces and to be able to share, you know, their hobbies, their things around their room. They were so creative. I remember one of our teachers asked the students to build a Noah's Ark because they were learning Parshat Noah. And the kids build models out of Lego and they use all these resources with their stuffed animals. And one kid said, this is my Noah's Ark. It's my bunk bed because my bunk bed has two levels. And if you can imagine, there's another level under my bunk bed. And that was his Noah's Ark. Like you could never bring that to school. You know, that was brilliant. And I love that. So I think we have to be creative and, and making sure we bring the whole child into the school and into our classrooms. And that's definitely a challenge. But that happens through relationship building, taking the time to learn about our students' hobbies, their interests, their challenges, their everything. Also, I think that Zoom is a, it could be a resource. It could be, it's not a, it's, it's a supplement. You know, we had two families Zooming in from Florida and that was incredible. They really wanted to learn at Maimonides School with the Hashkafa of the school. And we had the opportunity to have them join us. So we had three of their children, um, a second grader, a fourth grader and a seventh grader. And, you know, we sent them our swag. They had Kitabet signs, Kitadalid and, and Zion. 
And that was incredible. But what was lacking was the social interactions. And that was, that was a challenge because recess is the time that you bond with your friends and over lunch, you know, talking with your friends and catching up and learning about their family and their background and, you know, and, and having discourse over a biblical text. And it's not the same when you are not in person. I mean, you did a great job with it, Ziva, online. And I think it's definitely possible. But there is something that's lost in the relationship when it's on Zoom. Michal, I'm wondering with that bunk bed uh, example, did any of the other kids like challenge them? Like, oh, well, but in the text, it said like, how can you fit that many animals in there? And is that... I mean, because it's the back and forth that I'm always interested in the classroom. And I'm wondering if on Zoom, you experienced that at all. Like, okay, your box, your turn, you share. Okay, now your box, your turn, you share. Or was there any cross communication going on? There was definitely cross communication. And they were just so complimentary to each other for their creativity and really thinking out of the box. I mean, some kids took a shoebox and created their Noah's Ark. But this child who literally used his bunk bed because that's where he would zoom in from every single, you know, every single day, every session. And I I thought that it allowed our students to express their creativity like never before. Um, You know, some kids use their own pets in Noah's Ark. You know, you couldn't do that in school. I mean, it's maybe you could, (laughs) you know, that would be a challenge to bring your pet to school. But that was amazing. That was, you know, their own flavor um, and their own personalities. It was, it was, it was incredible. I can't, I can't express it enough. I want to, this is, this is really wonderful. I want to relate what you're talking about to one of the things that surprised me about the article, which was that you found, as we've been discussing that despite all of the obstacles and the distance and the lack of teacher authority, et cetera, that actually the students in your classroom did engage. They did engage with the material successfully and they did engage with each other, maybe not in the same way as in person, but I think that was to some degree surprising to you as well, those, those findings that, that kind of comes off the page. And I'm wondering um, a couple of things, besides the small classroom, that that obviously having eight kids is different from having 20 kids and easier to work with. Two things. First of all, the age group was 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 surprisingly helpful because perhaps younger children are less self-conscious online. and And even though there was a tremendous amount of concern about having younger children be be online and not be in person, that ironically, younger children might have actually done better online than than some some older students would have. And also, I'm wondering if specifically about Jewish studies, if Jewish studies is something that's easier to pull off online, because by its very nature, it requires and elicits engagement of material and interstudent relationships in ways that other subjects may not. What do you think, Zima? Yeah, so I was very concerned, um, as we all were as educators, that the children have opportunities to speak with one another um, because we knew that 
this was their, not only their education, but also their social engagement. And so my top priority, which is also part of my pedagogy, which is also part of Michal's pedagogy and Aviv's pedagogy, was to get the students to talk to each other and ideally to talk to each other about text. I do not think that the age helped. I keep wanting to come back to this point. This was not a good situation. Like these kids needed to be in school. Now, we did the best we could, and we learned a lot of fascinating things, such as Michal's bunk bed story, or I have the story about the siblings, or the bringing the father in, right? One boy, he's confusing. They're having an argument about whether um, monsters are real. And he's saying, I know monsters are real because my father told me, which we've all heard in the classroom. Uh, Parents are big sources of authority on what is true in the world at that age. And then he goes and gets his father. And he was thinking of David and Goliath that was confused between the monster and the giant. The father corrects him. And, and so really interesting dynamics and the full personalities of the students came out. But was it easier? Absolutely not. Um, and one of the things is like, I did not have the physical space is actually an incredible resource that we have not theorized because we've never had anything but physical space. And so I think that there's some theorizing of physical space that Michal was getting at that we need to do. So in my example from the article, they're having this argument about whether the text believes in uh, monsters. And his classmate is making this really sophisticated argument to him and he walks off screen to get his father. Mm-hmm. which is both really powerful, but also a missed opportunity, right? And I have not, I can't do anything. I literally cannot stick my hand through the screen and pull him back and say, hey, <laughs> your classmate is making a really interesting point and I want you to hear it. I can't do that. And so I think that's the loss that Michal is, is speaking to. Um, and and that that was unfortunate. I wanted him to hear his classmate. And there's a way that you have subtle capacities in a physical space that you simply do not have online. But I also enjoyed reading the article and and it showed the benefit of teaching multi-age students at the same time because children learn from each other across grades. And once again, to hear the different perspectives, right? A preschool student and a first grade will have different perspectives of about Hashem and about what the picture is trying to depict, right? So I thought that that was a unique experience where we normally don't have that in our classrooms. You know, we teach 20 kindergartners or 18 first graders, and they, I mean, they still have their unique perspectives, but the cross-age level, I wonder, like, what did you gain from that? Or how did you see you know, the benefits and the challenges of having three different age groups in your Zoom class? I really tried to challenge, so Aviv, and maybe I'll speak to this in a second, but Aviv does uh, does multi-age teaching um, that I got to observe when I was in California with him, um, that I also tried to recreate, but I wasn't as successful as him. So sort of to create like, this is your, you're an expert in this and you're an expert in this. And the most obvious one when you have students who are pre-literate and literate is, okay, you can actually read and you can't. And so to even move into multimodal texts was a new experience for me that I had to have pictures 
And I had to have words because some of the kids could decode and some of the kids could not. And so that was really um, one of the most literal spaces and areas where I had to say, okay, I actually have these multi-age kids. And so sometimes a pre-Ker would be reading the picture and a first grader would correct them. Well, you might see God here, but the pictures, the words say something else. And so how do you actually, if you're interested in interpretive authority, as I am, how do you, how do you negotiate that? You literally have access to words that other students don't. Oh, Michal and Aviv, I'm wondering about the, the age group. Was there an age group that you felt because of their age did best online and others because of their developmental stages did worse? What did you find? So I think that in kindergarten, it was the most challenging because we focus on social skills. Um, and at the same time, there was social distancing and three feet apart and not sharing of materials and not um, and wearing masks, right? There were so many challenges um, for a young student. And, but I have to say, they were so happy to be in person with all of that. Um, this was last year, but on Zoom, it was really challenging. Um, how do you teach uh, letter formation when students reverse their letters and you're not right there to show them, to model? You know, this is how you, this is a D and this is a B, right? And that was really challenging or to phonemic awareness for the kids to articulate their reading or their sounds that there were definitely cha more challenges in kindergarten. Um, one thing that happened often that D Ziva described is students would just leave the Zoom. And I'm like, come back, where are you going? Come back. And they would just close the door and leave the room. And there was nothing that we could have done about that. You know, I think the older students were more mature and they, you know, in the beginning, it was a novelty. The Zoom experience was exciting and new and allowed them to still interact with their friends and learn with their teachers. But after a while, you know, from eight to three is a long day. So that was really hard. They needed more frequent breaks and, you know, outdoor breaks and more engagement interactions with Zoom uh, breakout rooms. And, and, and that's when the creativity had to come in because to sit in front of a screen for so long was, was very challenging. So I began with uh, second grade. Those are the youngest that I teach. I had a kindergartner who uh, was on Zoom at home, uh, and I got to experience that, which was very challenging for him. Um, so we were fortunate that, you know, we closed in March here in California, and we had all that time to prepare the students in person. So we had a rhythm, we had expectations, and they knew what the uh, what a regular lesson would look like and feel like. So they could translate that into the Zoom experience. Um, but uh, we haven't talked about what the metrics are. You know, what, what are we measuring here to see if it was successful or not? 
Um, and I have a series of metrics, but really when it comes down to it, what I'm looking for is that I have learned, I, the teacher, have learned some new interpretation of the text when I have left that classroom. And why do I learn something new? Because I'm with a group of students who are coming fresh to this text and don't have all of the Rashi and Rambam and the Meforshim in their minds. They are just coming to this text with all the connections that they have in their lives. And uh, they don't see, they don't have those restrictions here. Like, oh, this is the way that you play with the text. They just come at it like they would at any other interpretive game that they're playing. I would have to say that um, the learnings that I had um, coming out of in-person were stronger and deeper and more shocking and interesting for me than they were out of Zoom. Now, it could be for a number of reasons. My assessment is that um, these uh, nuanced interpretations come about between when, when the kids are playing with each other, when they're bouncing off of each other, sometimes physically, but hopefully um, rhetorically. And um, their ideas, you know, they don't throw it out into the Zoom sphere and, you know, someone else throws another other one, it's in the classroom and someone can raise their hand or even sometimes call out like, no, that doesn't make sense because, you know, the text says this. And through those encounters, something will be stumbled upon that I can say as a teacher, like, oh my gosh, I've never heard that before. I've never heard that interpretation. Um, this is really interesting. Those I get much more often in person than I get on Zoom. Um, so I would say, um, though my second graders were engaged and uh, they were participating, um, it was more difficult, as many have said here, to know if the text was in front of them. I had to create PowerPoints that I didn't have before that had the text right there on the screen in front of them, which, of course, limited my screen space. So I couldn't see as many students as I wanted to. I couldn't see them all at once because the screen in Zoom was sharing the text. Um, so that, uh, for me made all of the measurements more difficult. So if my metrics, for example, were some of them were like, I want maximum participation. I want the, the greatest number of students to participate. Well, in my classroom, I have a way of doing that. When a student raises their hand and share, I have a little stamp pad where I, you know, put a little stamp on their paper when they share something. Uh, how do I do that when I'm on zoom? Because at the end of the unit, I can collect their papers in person and just sort of count their stamps and say like, oh, you know, David hasn't participated as much as I expected. In my mind, he participated so much because actually the two things he said were brilliant. So I expanded them in my mind. But when I looked at his papers, turns out that those were the only two times he participated in three weeks. Um, but if I'm on Zoom, what I'm doing is listening, trying to respond, trying to include other students, trying to click other students on. And also on my piece of paper, I'm marking down how many times kids are participating and taking notes on, you know, who said and what they said. It's just overwhelming for the teacher to do that. You know, classroom is overwhelming as it is. Um, to add that extra layer is very, very difficult. So, um, you know, Ziva was fortunate. She had a group of students who could afterwards go over the recording and do her beautiful markings of when did they ask a question and when did they make a statement and when did they respond? And let's count all those up. As a teacher, even though I recorded, to go back and listen to that would have been wonderful, but the time wasn't there and um, it made assessment much more challenging for me. Let, that's, a, that's a great segue to, to the question of assessment, which was really, I think, one of the most striking aspects of, of the articles. Eva, you could talk about it. You had, you had a whole team in there uh, helping you with recordings and everything. Talk a little bit about that. 
Yeah, absolutely. So this was, again, I am a full-time uh, professor at Brandon's University. And so any of the teacher research I do is still emphasis resource-wise on research. Um, and so I have a lab of undergraduate and master's students at Brandeis University called Scroll Lab. Um, and what we do is they help me with, so research is incredibly um, time consuming. We have to transcribe, we have to rewatch, we have to come up with the code book, we have to code it, we have to make sure that we have inter-rater reliability. And so if you're trying to actually research and understand the phenomenon of what is actually happening in this alternative space, it, it takes time. Um, and so what we did is we actually, I only taught this to Michal and Avi, they're gonna say, were you really teaching? <laughs> um, it was twice, but I also had my university courses, but I taught these children twice a week. Mm-hmm. So they had their uh, full-time teacher and I, and this was actually from a research perspective. I don't know if this is interesting. It was interesting to me, but I had all these features of Zoom that I wanted to use for research, um, such as to create the transcription. And um, there were certain things that I wanted to set up my classroom, but I actually, because it was such young children, they just asked me to join. As much as it's weird to teach in someone else's classroom, it's really weird to teach in someone else's Zoom. So we actually didn't even have video recording. We literally, I had a student who, as I was teaching, were, was in their home and put like a audio recorder, you know, the old school little thing, uh, and then re-listened. So um, that's how we analyzed. We listened, 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 transcribed, and then came up with these um, codes and what was happening, what's the dynamics. Now, to view's question of the metrics, again, there's no comparison because it's not that you have half the world in a pandemic and half the world not in the pandemic. You know, everyone's in the pandemic. So what would be the comparison? Would it be the students who chose to go to school in person? That's not exactly right because their situation is different, right? Any child who has to do school online, if they have the option to have returned, is in a different situation. So it's not that, and I wasn't teaching, I wasn't going into the school. So it wasn't clear. We never, we decided that there was no real comparison. So we took out the idea of doing a comparison and we said, let's just understand this dynamic, this phenomenon. And so that's what we did. Michal, how, how did you change your metrics for online learning? So it depends if we're talking about March of 2020, you know, or we're talking about last year. March of 2020, we were very privileged that it happened in March. So we've had systems and routines in place. Uh, We build relationships with our students and teachers and each other. And there was, right, we were not starting from scratch. So we had systems in place and we tried to transfer everything online. Um, And I have to say that with all the challenges, our students were able to uh, reach their end of the year benchmarks in literacy and writing and in math. Um, Teachers were very creative in crafting different kinds of assessments, such as flip grids and video responses and Google forms of multiple choice and other ways, other presentations than they normally had in class. 
Um, last year was a very different ball game because we did not have the privilege of, of doing what Ziva did. We had in-person students and then we had some remote learners who opted out for remote learning and the teacher needed to juggle both at the same time. So it was uh, a juggling act and it was, there were many, many challenges um, but we needed to add an additional support in every classroom. There were some, some classrooms who had assistants just monitoring the remote learners while the teacher taught the in-person students. And let's not forget, you know, they also had to juggle all the COVID protocols of wearing a mask and social distancing and the cameras and you know, the Zoom and everything else, which was a big challenge. Um, I also have to say that gateways are, you know, uh, our gateway support was able to do everything online, you know, and that was amazing because some students thrived. They still got their speech and OT and everything was fully remote um, and they were still able to, to access the, what they needed even though they were remote. We had about, about a dozen remote learners last year. And at the end of the year, I, I really interviewed each one of them and just wanted to, to see what, what their, their experience was like, how they, felt, how they felt about it. And they had a good experience because they integrated into the classroom and they feel like they didn't miss out. You know, They were in the classroom with the teachers and their friends, but they really missed out on the social interactions. They missed recess. They miss gym, they miss art, they miss the science experiments, they missed music, you know, those things are not replaceable on online, They're, you just can't, you can't sing on Zoom, you know that. Um, so, you know, there were benefits, uh, but there were a lot of challenges. Uh, so when Elliot wrote me and said, do you want to participate in this, I wrote back and I said, well, if you want some guy to be up on your podcast saying uh, Zoom is horrible, there's absolutely no situation in which I would ever want to do that again, then fine, bring me on, I'll do it. And, you know, he, he massaged it a little bit. And, you know, Elliot is great. He can, he can get you on. Uh, but something magical just happened for me here. Um, I was coming in, all my notes are here are saying, you know, I'm going to tear down Zoom. I'm going to tear down this online. But Ziva, you said something and Michal said something about the fact that we're in the house and that their father or mother could be called in. So um, I, I'm going to throw something out here, which is, uh, what if we created a situation in which the Zoom experience or the online experience was a family experience? Everyone in the family has to be there. Because I'm thinking about all the problems here and the solutions that this proposes here. Okay, so you need social interaction. Okay, well, now you have the whole family together. Um, but we want to make sure that a, a number of people can participate and share. So, you know, one person from the family can be the one who shares with the group online, but the chavruta, the, the discussion happens with the family together and we get to see what happens in the household and they get to show us and they get to use the materials in the household. Um, and, you know, family education is something that we find very difficult here at the day school. It's like, how do we get the parents here? They're so busy. Um, how do we go to their homes? Yeah. Aviv, what's the, cause that's absolutely, I know we're running out of time and that is the learning that you want the family. You want to see the family. The family has to be part of the learning, not just the complaining, not just the emails about whoever, but in the classroom learning. And to my question, and I need an answer for both of you before we end this is how do we get that? How do we get the parents 
Yeah. Maybe you're right. Maybe the answer is Zoom, but how do we get the parents into the classroom and into the learning, not just watching from above? I think, I think it's, it can be done through technologies, Eva. Like the student can create um, the Noah's Ark example with his bunk bed, record it, bring it to the classroom. The learning can happen with the family. They can record it. They can zoom into the classroom. We now have the technology that we never had before, right? We have special guests from Israel or grandparents day, you know, was in the classroom from Australia and Mexico and Israel. That was incredible. Grandparents couldn't always do that. So we have to take advantage of the technology that we have, but not forget the benefits of bringing them to our classrooms as, as much as we can, because that really is the whole child to understand their family dynamics and to see their bedrooms and bring their pets and their relatives and, and everything else that they could just, it, it takes time. But I think with technology, we could definitely do that. Um, well, I'm inspired. <laughs> I never wanted to be on Zoom again, but I'm, I'm, I'm actually thinking about it more deeply now. Uh, I'm not sure when this would happen um, it, during the school time or maybe on a Sunday where we actually have a study session where the families are together and we guide them on how they have that discussion in the house together. And then we come together again, maybe later in person or on Zoom. So um, I want to thank everybody for pushing me in a direction that I didn't think I was going to get to by the time this discussion was done. Yeah, I want to thank you all, Elliot and Ziva and Aviva as well. Thank you for giving me this opportunity to, number one, once again, collaborate with educators that I that share the same passion that is uh, dear and, and near, uh, near and dear to my heart, but also to reflect on this experience for the past two years, because I think it's been such a challenge and it's easy to move forward to normalcy, but I think we need to bottle this experience and really be grateful for what's in front of us. And we can't do that if we don't reflect about everything that we've learned and everything we've experienced and, um, and be grateful to our health and our family and our friends and, and definitely Jewish education because we did not miss a beat. All of the Jewish day schools did not miss a beat with the Chagi Goat and celebrations and milestones and color war and assemblies and the, and the list is on and on and on. But I think that, um, you know, Jewish day schools across the country were in Zoom heaven when we had to be. So, so call a kavod to all the Jewish day schools for making that happen to our students. Thank you, Ziva, Aviv, and Michal for a wonderful conversation about online learning. If you like what you heard, please give the podcast five stars and share it with your friends and on social media. You can follow our podcast by searching for Prisma on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. To learn more about Prisma, go to our website at www.prisma.org and follow us at Prisma CJDS. Prisma's work, including this podcast, is made possible by generous funders who believe deeply in the power of a great Jewish day school education. Visit prisma.org to add your name to the growing list of donors supporting day schools across North America. 
Thank you for tuning in to today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed and we'll come back again soon for future episodes.